Hi there, welcome to uh, episode 13 of um, of my podcast, 13, for the superstitious of you out there. Switch off, of course, now, immediately, because this is number 13, so if you listen to this podcast, terrible things will happen. Um, sorry about that, but um, yeah, so... Or you could just think of it as uh, episode 14. I have miscounted on two occasions, and this may well not be episode 13. So it, it is actually episode 13. This is actually yeah, the 13th episode. Um, thanks for coming back, if you have. Sorry about that uh, reference to superstition there, or being superstitious. I'm not particularly superstitious. It's one of those things, it's like a sort of strange cultural thing. But some people are very, very, um, you know, they take it very seriously, um, which is uh, which is fine. So anyway, this is episode 13. I'm going to talk a bit today, following on from last week. It kind of um, feels like a natural progression to go from talking about some books and things. Well, he talks about a few books. Had a few people message me about books they'd been uh, checking out. A lot of those books are, um, are books that I would consider uh, like style books, you know, like the uh, Tommy Igo book, you know, like Groove Essentials, those sort of things, um, which are all great books. You know, all that stuff's good. The, the main, the main thing I think I wanted to just put across from what I was saying last week was just it's about balance isn't it I think and if we just uh, if we're trying to improve then we probably need to engage with um, a few different approaches or you know ways of thinking about playing um, as in playing along to some you know music copy you know trying to copy people or getting certain styles learn how they do what they do some technique learning how to, you know, control the, um, the sticks and control your feet, the pedals, that kind of stuff. I'm just generally thinking about sound, so that, you know, obviously connects a bit to technique, but sound's also a conceptual thing. It's uh, trying to get close to what, we you know, we imagine we want to sound like or what we maybe don't even know we, we, we can sound like. Um, all those kind of things. I mean, there, you know, it's an ongoing development as well as as technique. Uh, a lot of people forget about the sound element. It's very important to me. It's very important in my teaching. Now, when I talk about sound, you want people to like the sound of what you do. You know, I've mentioned this before, and I think it's important that um, you know people have um, have that connection to you. You know. Drums are always have this reputation of being loud and obnoxious and all that kind of stuff. Play quieter, shush, snare drums too loud or whatever, you know. And I I always think it's it's good to you know come from a place where you um, can often be asked to play more, you know, or play up. Um, you know, some people you know they won't ask you to do that. They just they just won't really like the way you play. But that that's fine. Those people generally want somebody, in my experience, who plays in a different way than I do, you know, conceptually, fundamentally, kind of musically, you know, just as, as a sort of, uh, as an approach to playing the instrument. So, so yeah, it's that kind of balance thing. And then there's a sort of styles thing as well, in different styles, if you want to improve, that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, just before I get onto that, just a bit of a, recap about um this week um it's been a sort of strange week the weather again has been kind of a it's a bit of a funny time at the moment there's a lot of things going on in the world you know where we're all i think a lot of people are aware of um of this uh this coronavirus thing that's going on around the world and i work in um Predominantly, you know, my my job it's in education. It's an institution which has you know over a thousand uh, students, and um, the thing at the moment everyone's thinking about is 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 uh, are we going to end up in a situation where people are not going to work? You know, are not going to be going out to work. 
And uh, that has huge implications, obviously, for, for everybody. I mean, it's a ridiculous thing to say, but you're just thinking very selfishly here about, about um, I'm obviously probably talking to other musicians and thinking about the impact it would have on our livelihoods and our lifestyles. Um, and I think, you know, if it does get to that stage, um, the thing that I know that I'm going to do is I'm going to spend some time just practicing, really. Just, you know, spend some time maybe writing some music as well. Just, uh, you know, these kind of things are all opportunities, aren't they, in a way. But it's if, you, if you know, if you're a pre predominantly a gigging musician, which, which I'm not, um, at the moment, um, then it could have a real impact, you know, upon uh, upon many parts of your life. Because you know, the gigging life, as I've talked about in one of the previous uh, podcasts, you know, the, the gigging life is not just about going out and playing music. It's a social thing. It's a, uh, you know, us gigging musicians. Um, when I was gigging a lot years and years ago. Um, I, all the people that I saw really in my life were were through playing music, and there were people that I was uh, I was seeing um, on gigs, and you know, and socialising with those people outside gigging. But there were people that I knew from music, and people that I gigged with, and a lot of the kind of conversations and time spent together was doing that. And so, if there if there is a bit of an impact with this with this virus thing, if it does spread across uh it starts to become more problematic you know within europe uh, at the moment it seems to be sort of um, mainly in italy and little little bits of it in other countries um but if it's if it's not contained which is it's highly unlikely that it will be because that's not what happens with with these sorts of things is it they you know they spread and uh, that's just, that's just evolution, isn't it? It's the, the way of the world. So, um, so if things you know if it ends up like talking about shutdown of schools for two months and things, and, and it will probably have an impact upon where I work because, you know, if there's ever any kind of um, any sort of thing is spread around, uh, it always goes through institutions like where I work. There's a lot of you know students live together uh, behind. The building where we teach, right, just sort of above us, is a big student accommodation and stuff. Spread through there, it flies through there like wildfire. You know that's what happens. It's just the nature of what it is. So um, yeah, just you know, just a call out to any you know musicians out there that are gigging musicians, and if it has an impact, you know, we're um, you know we're all thinking of each other. Hopefully, it won't have that. Uh, that won't happen. And then just the other thing is just like this kind of weather, you know, and uh, and I was sort of chatting to somebody yesterday. We were driving back from somewhere and it was pretty horrendous weather. There's a lot of snow and wind, very, very windy. But it just seems to go like the health and safety executive in this country and the sort of, you know, the, the warning, weather warning and, you know, driving. Don't drive above 40 miles an hour because there's a bit of a breeze, you know, stuff like I was just thinking about to 15 years ago and it just wasn't, he just kind of cracked on with it, you know, he's got on with it and, and everything was fine really, you know, we've had, you know, weather's been around for, um, it's a few billion years I think weather's been with us, you know, the dinosaurs were dealing with all kinds of weather probably and, you know, they lived for quite a while, um, you know, fish and, you know, donkeys, whatever. It's just animals. <laughs> it's uh, it's just a lot of nonsense, isn't it? Sorry, but um, you know, weather's weather. Let's deal with it. I mean, I think about some American friends and the the the, the, the sort of weather that they have in America in certain parts of America is inc genuinely incredible weather. You know, I just think, what what are we? What are we going on about here in the UK, you know, with weather? It's just so funny. But it all feels a bit oppressive at the moment. Anyway, so but the thing that's nice about it, it's Sunday today, so I'm a bit late doing this because I was driving yesterday. I had a day driving with my friend Murph, and we were driving over in Lincolnshire, and uh, we had quite a nice day. It was horrendous in the morning, but it, um, driving in the wet a bit, and then it was dry in the afternoon, so it was a very nice day. And uh, Friday... Um, 
couldn't get home in time to do this and uh, so I was a bit tired as well. So um, so it's Sunday now and it's really sunny today. It's, uh, it's not very warm, but it's a beautiful sunny day, blue skies outside. So I'm sat in my drum house shed, which has just been recently been done up. So, well, well, sort of improved or modified or whatever, and it's quite nice. I've got this new door, internal door. Anybody that sort of um, sees things I post on Instagram um, will have seen some pictures of the door. It's like this the shed is uh, 17 feet. Uh, the original structure was nine, and then we added, we added eight feet on. Um, and yeah, I've had a door basically put in the middle between the old structure and the, and the new uh, half of it. And uh, it's a door with double glazing. It's got some insulation and some bit of soundproofing in it. But it was just basically the main door. Uh, sorry, apologies for anybody else that's already heard this boring story. But the main door <coughs> that goes outside um, in in the in the original half of of the um, of this shed, of this kind of outhouse. Um, it's quite a thin door, and I used to have the drum kit in here, and, uh, and sound did kind of travel out, particularly when it was very sunny and very still. Um, so I moved the drums to the other side, to the, the new side of the of the drum house thing, and uh, there's a bit more insulation on the other side of it. So there's, I asked him when he built it to put some rock wood in the wall, so he did that. Um, and what I've just had done is there's three windows in there. I've just had him put another layer of double glazing. So there's, f there's two lots of double glazing. So it's four quadruple glaze now, um, which will help a little bit with the noise traveling out. And uh, and then this internal door, which makes things uh, a lot quieter when I'm practicing. Um, I've just managed to reset up um, my Yamaha a little Yamaha kit's just been uh, it's been in cases since I bought the Sonos. I've not been using it because I've been using the Sonos kit, which is I'm absolutely loving. Um, I've used both. The, the, I've used well the 18 and the 20 bass drums on on a few gigs, and uh, it's just amazing. They're amazing drums. They, they're amazing to play. That's the main thing about them. They sound great, but it's just the thing of 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 the fact they play very well. You know they. They're, Something about, particularly the 18-inch bass drum, about the... Uh, it's the first bass drum I've ever felt I can really play, which sounds a bit stupid, but it's it's the closest thing I can kind of say, really. I can I feel like I can genuinely play that bass drum like, um, like I can sticks. It's very, very strange. I, don't, I can't put, really put it into words, but there's something about it. I just love the way in which... Uh, when I'm when I'm playing it, I kind of connect with it, and interface with it. It's something, yeah, it's something really great about it. I've got it tuned uh, quite high as well, which is quite nice. And I've never really tuned, don't really tune bass drums high. It's not something I've really done before, but it's something just about the way that drum's set up and the way I've tweaked it. And uh, yeah, it's been great. But the Yamaha kit, which I was using all the time, um, was put away. It's been put away. It's been in case for a while. Cause I've not had a kit set up in there for ages anyway, because. Uh, not had a few problems in noise, so I'm going to see how I get on with this, um, with the new door, with the kit set up. Um, going to start practicing again on the kit because I'm not not done for a while, and that should be that should be good. Um, so yeah, so yeah. Anyway, it's a nice day today. I don't know. Hoping it stays like this, but uh, back at work tomorrow, and um, it's all very busy at the moment. So. Yeah, um, but teaching, you know, it's been interesting teaching and, and, and thinking about this podcast, it's funny because a lot of the things that sort of occur or crop up during teaching actually do, they always feed into what I'm thinking about week to week with drums, you know, and uh, two sort of coincidences happened this week, um, in this last week. So I, had, I did this podcast about books last week and a few people got, you know, said, ah, oh, they've been doing this or they've been doing that with the books or some people... Um, we're talking about books they were studying from and uh, and were suggesting some books, um, blah, blah, blah. But there was also just this sort of question that was was asked 
by a kind of coincidence, really, just about sort of um, about technique and technique with all four limbs, which is not often talked about. What tends to happen with um, with studying the drums is, is a lot of people, I mean, I did, a lot of people focus on the hands. They really focus on the hands and they, they, they get this kind of, a, you know, this rudimental approach or whatever and they get into playing, you know, doubles and, uh, you know, rudiments and things. And people forget about what's going on downstairs, you know, from the ground up. And one of the things I talk about a lot when I'm teaching is just that that really we've got to think from the ground up. It's you know if you um, if you think about sort of nature and gravity and all that kind of thing and physics, you know things things grow from the ground. You know they they, they have a foundation and they grow from the ground. I've talked about this before, um, and when I'm asked a lot about technique, um, I'm rarely asked about, you know, all four limbs. I'm always generally asked about the hands. But I wanted to talk today about the hands and the feet and technical approaches. Just a few different ideas and maybe different things that people have got into or things that I've certainly thought about. Um, or things that might make you think about how you play or things that might intrigue you about how you maybe want to get into that kind of technical approach. And um, I'm going to start with the feet, actually. I'm not going to start with the hands because it's a, you know, it's not a hugely complicated area with the feet, I don't think. Um, uh, and some people may not agree with that, and, and that's fine. I, I would say that those people probably know a lot more about foot technique than I do. I don't consider myself, and never have, someone that um, has any real specialism in in the feet. Anybody that knows me uh, personally and knows my opinions about my my own playing knows that I will generally be pretty um, pretty negative about my feet, my ability to play from my feet and what I can do with my feet. Uh, I think I'm pretty clumsy on my feet. I, I think I'm not. I'm just not very light on my feet. I, it's just the foot. The foot thing has always been, um, yeah, bit of a bit of a bit of a pain to be honest with you. And um, I spent years and years and years undecided about how I should play in the feet. So I was going to share a couple of things with you today, which. Uh, may help you or maybe just funny or just interesting or maybe um, complete nonsense um, but it's to do with playing heel up or playing heel down and uh, and where one feels like they play from in the foot you know when they're playing the pedals um, and I'm just talking here about a bass drum in your lead foot and a hi-hat in the other foot now, for me, the lead foot is right foot and the hi-hat is in the, you know, and that's where the bass drum is in the hi-hat, so my left foot. So I'm going to probably re- refer to things in in a rightist way, which is what happens generally. Sorry, lefties, that's what tends to happen in the world. Uh, but I've, I've got two or three left-handed students at the moment, so uh, I do my best to refer to things by part of the kit, not by, um, by sticking, but that's not always... Um, that doesn't always happen because of you know just the way I think about playing the instrument, you know, because I'm sort of wired to think about uh, these the, my four limbs and the way they connect with the instrument, and also about about how I'm sticking things, how I'm doing what I'm doing, you know. So sometimes the rightist in me just comes straight out, you know. It's like oh, yeah, right, you know, paradiddle, right, left, right, right, left, right, left, left, you know, not left, right, left, left, right, left, right, right, which is you know. And a lot of books are written very rightist, and it's a bit of a shame, but it's it's like it's the world we live in, and um, you know, uh, I'm sure it'll change over time. Um, but for me, the bass drum is played with the right foot, and the highest played with the left foot, and there's kind of 
most people think, well, there's two ways of playing, aren't there? You play with your heel on the ground and you play and pivot through that heel and you, you know, you hit the hit the drum and um, or you close the hi-hat and uh, make the hat makes a sound if you if you push down with your left foot. Um, and I'll get into the hi-hat thing in a minute because it's actually quite complicated, the hi-hat. It's an interesting thing, but it's often miss. A lot of people don't really think about the hi-hat. And I think there's a lot of misinformation about the hi-hat as well and the way the hi-hat's played and the way that people can utilise the hi-hat and make different sounds with the hi-hat. But basically, if you move either of your feet, they will strike something that you're that, that's connected to the pedal that they're on. You know, The right foot will hit the bass drum. Now, some people, when they're talking even about feathering the bass drum, when they're playing heel down, they will leave the, leave the beater on the head, you know, um, which has a particular sound. And uh, it's not a bad sound. Depends on how the drum's tuned. But um, I'm my, my view, if you're feathering, is that that's not a great idea because I, I always believe you should you should return back to the where you start from, where you want to start from. Now, somebody could say, well, the start is from on the head back to on the head, and that's perfectly fine. For me, the start is where the foot is when you pick the foot up, there's a point where you're going to strike the drum. And I've I've had more success feathering the bass drum um, when I've played from this up position. So just, you know, a centimetre or an inch away from the head and you strike the drum and the foot comes back to that position where it's going to strike from, you know, with the heel down. Um so that's kind of feathering, but, you know, that's not everything when playing the bass drum. You know, you, we're playing grooves and stuff. We can also play in exactly the same way. Um, but sometimes it is nice to leave the beater on the head because it's a, it's a deader sound. You can sort of control this open and closed sound by by either leaving the beater when you strike the drum, leaving it dead on the head, or coming away from the drum, you know. Um and so you practice various different things with your heel down and you get, you know, you gain speed and uh, and that's great. And that's like one, it's like a really, really simple, no fuss approach to playing the drums because you haven't got to deal with balance because your heel in the right foot, if you're right footed or, le or in your left foot, if you're left footed, but the heel in the bass drum is on the floor and so this means that essentially, in a, in a sort of sense of physics, you've got a stool with your backside sat on it. You've hopefully got, you know, a good straight back and your shoulders are relaxed. And you've got a decent centre of gravity within your upper body. And then you've got to, you know, and then it's got to lean against something. We can't just sort of be this torso swaying about with no kind of no support. That's pretty, that's pretty hard to do. So if you're playing heel down then you're always going to have something that you're leaning against, you know, that's something that's balancing the those sort of, if you like, the top of your legs, you, you know, your, the, the sort of bones in your backside, uh, kind of like, it's like three points of four, isn't it? But if you're playing heel down in the hi-hat as well, then all four points are, are basically balanced and, and are on, you know, uh, are... are even on each surface that they are on, you know, so you got, you know, you got, you're sat on a stool, so you, your backside's on the stool, and that's all balanced because both heels are on the ground. Now, as soon as you take the heels off the ground, in one or both feet, that changes, and the impact of that is quite profound, you know. So, if you're playing uh, just flat-footed in both feet. It's a very, it's a very simple approach, and it's a very successful approach. I think you can, I think you can play most things that way, um, and you can certainly do that if you, if you practice that approach and you really work hard on making a good sound and work on a sort of endurance and speed and uh, you know power, volume, and all those kind of things. You can play. Know, pretty much everything healed down but some people 
um, like to play heel up. And the heel up thing is very different. The whole question of balance and all that is uh, is a huge is a huge change in in the emphasis of where of where you feel like you're balancing from when you play heel up. We're more reliant, I think, on the kind of the mechanisms of the pedals that we're using and where we where our kind of the balls of our feet uh, are on the pedals. We're in the, you know they're normally in a different position than they are when you play flat footed. Um, and then there's this thing of you know, a lot of the time, if you're playing like in the bass drum, if you're playing doubles, and we're using this sort of uh, this technique of sort of like toe to ball, or you want to call it maybe some people call it ball heel, some people say heel um, toe. You know, so they're playing from the back of the foot to the front of the foot, which is a way of playing. I tried to practice that. Uh, I tried all sorts of exercises, and I found it um, hard. I found it very challenging. I found it kind of was. It was reorganizing my brain in a way which I didn't really have time to do at the time because I was playing a lot at the time and it was really causing havoc with um, with having time to practice anything else really because it was such a difference for me to be to be but this this to be playing you know doing that sort of thing where the heel goes down first and then the toe as opposed to sort of toe ball or toe heel where you're like almost sliding up the pedal but there is something about that technique i still i still sort of like something about that technique it sort of it, it reminds me of um of this kind of sort of molar thing in the hand or thing that the conga players do a lot where they play a downstroke that they that hits the conga with the with the sort of back of the end of the hand and then on the way up the fingers um touch the conga so you get this is like i don't know if you can hear this this is my right hand on the pad so you get that sound that loud sound is is the end of sort of end of my forearm or the you know the beginning of my hand um hitting the drum and then as i as i pick up and that that's that's what that technique feels like to me in the right foot and there are some people i've seen they play very fast in that way uh, the main problem I had was coordinating it into what the hands were doing. It was it's all the opposite way round of what I sort of learned, you know. And um, and in the left foot again, it's the same. It's the same thing. You can play uh, heel and toe, and for some reason, I find that a lot easier to do in the left foot because of the because it because it kind of connects to the splash sound with the hi hat. So. Before getting to talking about hi hat technique, I just want to talk about the hi hat. And there's a, there's a the funny thing with the hi hat because the hi hat performs two fundamental activities for me. One is that if you're playing a groove, you close the hi hat with your foot in order to have a tight sound. And the tighter you push, the sort of the more high pitch generally the hi hats will go. And as you relax the foot, the, the hi-hats will start to loosen and then become sloshy and then maybe we can start to sort of sizzle, you know. And then eventually as you pick the hi-hat, the foot up completely, the hi-hat is completely open and you've got that open sound. So you've got two things going on there. You've got, so you'll be playing like, you know, whatever you're playing on a hi-hat, like a sort of you know, a pattern like that, which, is, which will be in the, the closed sound that maybe has a little interloping vibe like that does a little accentuation or maybe a little swing or whatever. And then in order to create this other sound, this open sound, we have to pick the foot up at the right point and close the hi-hat again. So with, you know, with the bass drum, we've got this kind of act, this pushing down activity creates sound um, in the hi-hat. Uh, if you're not playing on the hi-hat, pushing the hi-hat down with, with the foot also creates, you know, a chick-chick-chick sound through the hi-hat. And lots of, you know, lots of great jazz players like Bill Stewart and people like that, they really utilise that um, that limb in that way. They, they, they play lots of really nice things in the hi-hat. Um, it's a real part of, of four voices, especially if we're playing like a swing thing where the right hand is on the ride symbol and the left hand is comping, the left foot is comping and the right foot is comping. It's this this four-way thing going on. So, but, you know, the hi-hat, when you're wanting to create this open sound, you have to 
pick the foot up to create this open sound for however long you want, then you close <clears throat> you close the hi-hat again. So it's a funny, it's a funny thing with the hi-hat because it's like the opposite of what the right foot's fundamentally doing. The function of the right foot is to play, you know, um, these bottom end, these vertical things a lot of the time in the groove um, or whatever it is, or syncopations within the groove or comping within a jazz thing or whatever it is, or tumbao thing in a, in a, in a you know, in a Latin style or in a mambo thing, you know, playing a, or, uh, you know, playing a, a specific pattern, like a, or an Eclipso or something, or in samba, playing like a pseudo sort of thing, whatever. The bass drum has these kind of functions and the hi-hat tends to have quite a different function, um, especially in a lot of music that I play. The hi-hat, I play a lot of the hi-hat on two and four, which is this sort of, this thing that changes the emphasis of the groove in the music. And if you're practicing like samba, you know, um, it's really interesting if you if you go from a thing where the, the hi-hat's on, the, the, is it the hi-hat's on the, um, on the one and the three with the bass drum, and you have like maybe sort of an open sound on beat three or something, and uh, and then you then you change the hi hat to be on the two and the four, it's and play exactly the same thing in the hands and and the right foot. It's funny how profound that that changes the groove just by having that that hi hat on two and four. It really makes a big uh, real emphasis on on what the function of that of that thing is in the hi hat. You know. Um, and uh, sometimes I like it on two and four. A lot of the time I like it on one and three. <clears throat> I don't. I don't even mind it sometimes. You know, in some jazzy things where the hi hats, or I like the hi hat on all four beats. About here's quite modern players, and you get this sort of hi hat that's just one two three four one two three, like a really insistent sort of four in a bar thing. And I think that's quite funky. Um, it's it's a, I think it's a bit of an underrated way of playing the hi hat personally in jazz. You know. Um, because a lot of traditionalists in jazz and they, they kind of want the drums to do a certain thing, which is which is fine. Um, also, one of the more modern players, I find it's quite interesting to hear their approach to using the hi-hat. The hi-hat's much more of a voice. So going back to one of those books last week, this four-way this four coordination book, which I was talking about, which um, I've got in front of me here, Um it's really, really good book for developing this sort of independence, as they call it, on the drum set. I, I, I think of it as more coordination than in, in, an independence. But um, and uh, the, the the independence word, I've said this before. I have a bit of a thing with it. I don't want anything to be really be independent within a within the drum kit sound. I want it to all be. Uh, I want it to sound like one instrument, but but coordinated. You know, but. The independence thing's fine. I'm just being a bit pedantic about it because that's what I'm like. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of like the, the the thing, the fundamental thing of the feet. You know, are you a heel down? Are you a heel up player? So in bebop, you're playing like bebop jazz swing. You know, sometimes, you know, playing heel up in the hi hat and sort of bouncing off off the ball of the foot. You know. And playing quite high up the pedal just to get that chick, 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 real, really, really defined sound is the only way it's going to cut it, you know. Because um, if you if you're if you sort of have a have a have an experiment and when you if you're practicing, say you are practicing some kind of basic swing stuff, if you're getting into that, try playing with the heel down and the heel up on the two and four and, and see how you, how you can articulate the left foot differently by using those two different techniques. Um, it becomes difficult when you, if you're playing the, uh, the hi-hat in ballads and stuff like that, it's quite hard, I think, to play sensitively heel up. I think it's just kind of common sense, really. Um, I have heard it done, but uh, most people have more success when the heel is on the ground and they can play, you know, more like this kind of feathering approach where you're playing, if you're playing like some little, you play maybe a ballad thing and you're playing on two and four with brushes, but you want to play some little expressive colours, um, a little kind of, you know, where you just kind of ching, 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 sort of, you know, little little sounds in the left foot. Listen to like, Jack Jeanette was always, he's always one of those great players that was always great at that thing. 
if you want to have that get into that sound, then um, again you're sort of playing from what I would consider the feathered position. You're playing from the from the the position where the hi hats open back to open again in order to get this kind of you know the piatti the clash cymbal sound. Ching, ching. You you can't do it from a closed position to a closed position. The hi hat won't resonate. It'll just be chick chick. So you've got to play almost like you're feathering the bass drum. And I always, I think about if I'm playing anything sensitive in the feet, I always think of that thing of playing from, you know, an, an inch or centimetre and a half from away from the thing I'm about to strike back to that position again, you know. So, so that's kind of, I mean, that's a little bit about foot technique. Um, I don't want to go into too many other things, but there are there are other approaches. But I think fundamentally, in the left foot, there's a heel down and heel up approach, uh, and the heel up approach utilizes the heel to get to make certain splashing sounds. In the right foot or the bass drum, then I think you know there's um, there's three approaches basically. There's heel down, and then there's two different sort of heel up approaches where you can play heel toe or um, toe ball or toe heel or whatever you want to think about it um, that kind of sliding up the pedal you know a lot, I see a lot of drummers that play groove and heavy music they utilize that technique because it can basically get a lot of power on the vertical strokes you know get a lot of power out of the drum um, so that's kind of like that's the feet and then the hands so the thing with the hands is, you know, a lot of people, I've talked about this before, start off from being, or, you know, a single stroke or a double stroke player. And that's, you know, entirely up to you and the music that you're playing and the needs of that music and how you're going to technically get around that music and the sort of fills you're playing and how you're playing grooves, and there's all kinds of different things that relate to um, are you a doubles or are you a singles player. Um, but none of that talks about hand technique, where one plays from in the hand. And uh, I'm not going to talk too much today about the sort of lineage of that and who invented what or whatever. And Lots of people seem to have taken ownership or, or, or put their own little stamp on um you know molar technique or whatever you know it's uh i just want to talk a bit really about physics and just about fulcrums pivot points and about where we play from in the forearm wrist or finger because that's for me that's fundamentally where things come from my approach most of the time um, is that the shoulders are pretty neutral. I try not to get involved in the shoulders doing, you know, too much. I, I'm not. I'm not involved in a boxing match here with with the drums. Um, but that's just my approach. I've seen lots of great drummers that do. You know, they do use the power of the shoulder, and they, you know, they almost like they're. Th you know, they're throwing in the weight from the hip like you would if you were boxing and using that. Um, but I, the music I play, I don't have any need to play like that. And I've sort of developed ways of throwing from the elbow, essentially, not from the shoulder or from the hip, actually. <laughs> I throw in from the, using, if I'm going to use really use anything with power, I'm going to use the weight of the stick for a start. That's always, I've tried to make that the starting point in the, in the last five to ten years. It's been a bit of a shift from, I always used to play things from the elbow or from the forearm before. Now I'm trying to, you know, support the weight of the stick from the elbow or from the forearm or from the wrist or from the finger. Uh, but yeah, the shoulders, I try and keep the shoulders relaxed. Um, when I'm practicing, I don't my shoulders. I don't do anything with my shoulders. I'm I sit very upright and practice in a very specific way. Uh, when I'm playing, I don't really think about it. my body; just moves about all over the place, um, and that's it's been fine. Never had any problems with my back or RSI or anything. So I, nothing seems to be doesn't seem to be a problem with anything. So I don't I don't view it as a problem. So, um, so yeah, kind of the thing with thing with like with hand technique 
is fundamentally, again, here we are. We've got two choices, haven't we? We play matched grip, which means that we are trying to match our grip. That's what I'm doing at the moment. It's been a weird time. I've been playing, I've been practicing match grip for quite a long time. I wasn't, I was never a match grip player. Uh, well, when I first started, I played match grip because that's what I thought you did. Um, and as I mentioned, I think way back in uh, podcast one or two, when I got into, when I saw Buddy Rich and started having lessons, these two things coincided with each other pretty quickly, actually, you know. I very quickly switched to traditional grip and played predominantly, uh, well, exclusively traditional grip for a long, 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 long time. And then 10, 12 years ago, I got back into playing match grip and I started practicing match grip quite seriously. Um, and uh, in the last year, I've kind of stopped playing match grip again and kind of got just playing traditional grip all the time really um enjoying traditional grip at the moment the thing i like about my own approach is that means that i have uh, options choices neither grip bothers me anymore i don't feel inhibited by either grip in pretty much any style of music actually um but I, there are certain styles of music where i will play match i'll just play match because it's just what I feel like with that music. It feels like I'm connecting to that groove and to the way the hands work together uh, better with match grip. And it's the same with traditional. But I'm predominantly at the moment playing uh, playing a lot of traditional grip. And, and it was it was about 60-40 match um, a year or so ago. And now it's come back, it's probably 70-30 traditional now, you know. So, um, and so I don't know what you play, but he, both things are absolutely fine and they're, they're great. There's no issue. You know, you know, you'd have to be a traditional grip player if you played jazz and all that sort of stuff that people tend to think. It's, um, that's not really true in any way. I know some great jazz players that play. I mean, I've mentioned Bill Stewart already. You know, he's like, a, he's a match grip player and he sounds amazing. His, his, his technique is unique and he gets an amazing sound out of the instrument and he swings like it's amazing his technique and the way the way he gets around the instrument and the control of sound it's just um he's just mega you know um he's a jazz drummer he plays match grip so there you go boom um one thing i do talk about with brushes if i'm teaching with brushes uh, a lot of um, people tend to uh, get on further with brushes when they're, when they're playing sort of jazz and stuff by playing the the, the traditional grip. Um, and they sort of, a lot of the match grip drummers I teach just naturally do it. You know, they just struggle a bit with chops. So I always tell them to practice a few things with the brushes, some patterns and stuff, just to make sure that they've got some chops down. And just, just a few simple, just like some simple rudiments, doubles and things like that and paradiddles and singles and stuff like that just to make sure that they can uh, they're not going to be inhibited with uh, expressing themselves while they're playing grooves a lot of times when they solo they'll just naturally switch back to, to match um, and that's that's i think that's totally cool uh, whatever works for you really i just think that when you're playing time and grooves and you want to be able to just interact a bit and uh, and I think that the interacting thing with brushes is very different than with sticks. I, I, for me, it is the way I feel about interacting when I'm playing kind of swing music and I'm playing with sticks or with brushes. The interaction is very different. Um, certainly, you know, the way that I can play the sticks and play the brushes, the interaction is very different. Um, so I think that you can get away with having a few little things down in traditional grip if you're a match grip player and you're playing brushes so that's cool um but anyway i don't want to get too much into that because i've kind of already been down that rabbit hole once already but you've got this thing of you play match you play traditional but then it's more complicated than that isn't it actually you know because if you play match grip then you've got several different choices haven't you you know 
So some people play with the fingers, they play French, which I always think is, because um, the hand position is a very open position. It's quite a, it's a slightly more, um, it looks like fundamentally a more gentle kind of approach. It's something a little bit more, the hands are more open. There's something that almost looks a little bit more vulnerable in a, in a pure sense of the word. And it's that thing of you're making the sticks bounce by using the fingers. And you've got you've, you've got that little bit of pivot through the fulcrum, which is, with French grip, tends to be in the forefinger on both hands, tends to be the first joint. I mean, I'm talking from the tip of the finger in, in towards the hand, not from the hand out towards the tip of the finger. So, you know, the first joint from the tip of the finger or the second joint from the hand, if you like, whichever way around you want to think about it. And, uh, yeah, and then, 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 then sort of the next place that people tend to hold the stick from and play from is, is they turn the hand over a little bit, but they still use that sort of first joint in the finger, the, 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 you know, the outer joint and the thumb and there's there's a fulcrum from there and to be honest with you in my right hand i pretty much play use that uh, at the moment in my right hand traditional grip and i'm definitely not doing that in the left hand the left hand as i specifically i'll talk about that in a minute but the right hand i'm playing in that joint now i don't always but i it's quite a lot of the time i do but also, you can have exactly the same kind of position, but you can be in the f the second joint or the first joint from the hand, uh, out from the hand, or the second joint in from the tip of the finger. The, you know, the, the sort of you can be holding the stick, the fulcrum between those two joints. You know, uh, and again, that's how I used to play a lot. And it's more like a German technique, like a flat-handed thing, really. It tends to, when I play like that, it tends to push, tends to, well, pull the whole hand and make it flatter. And it's, a, uh, when I was learning timpani years ago, um, I mentioned this book, Saul Goodman, last week, Modern Timpani, uh, Modern Method for Timpani, sorry. And, uh, and I was practicing crossover and I was playing German technique with a three-finger dampening system and... And it was a flat hand, and the stick was coming out, and it was in that that joint, which is the first joint from you know from the hand outwards, or from the second the second joint from the tip of the forefinger and the thumb, flat handed, and the and the end of the stick, uh, not the playing end, the other end of the stick, was basically directly in line with my forearm, so. It's like the whole thing when I it feels when you when I play like that like it's a direct link with my forearm. So, um, and it, it feels like a very controlled way to play. You know, it's very it's a useful way to play. Um, but I like to sort of split the difference between that that the German and the French thing, which is the halfway thing, and use that you know that uh, that first joint from the tip of the finger or the second joint from the hand. Um, and hold the stick there but the end of the stick uh, and again not the plain end but the other end is still in the same point in my hand it doesn't come out I see a lot of players where the, where the stick comes out uh, out of the hand to the side through the through the little finger through the pinky uh, which is a perfectly valid way to play by the way there's nothing wrong with that at all uh, I don't play like that I play the stick comes from the it's like a direct connection with the forearm it's like it's like as if it's been pulled out of the actual arm which is a truly hideous kind of um idea but um that's the only way i could describe it really it's pretty horrible actually sorry about that um yeah but it's like it's part of my arm you know it's an extension of the arm but it's not playing in that um that first joint from on the forefinger from the hand or the second joint from the end it's 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 playing from the the the, the end of the finger so that's one way in the right hand of playing or, or the left hand if you if you're left-handed and you play match grip and, and in the other hand if you're playing match grip regardless of right or left-handed because you're trying to mirror the hands all the time i think with match grip. that's the thing about match grip and i think that's a mistake of 
a lot of the things with match grip is people try and match the hands. We don't think we actually need to do that. And when I when I was getting into playing match grip, I don't even play match grip. So the way I play in my left hand, and this is another way of playing, and a lot of people will have seen this. Um, and I will mention him, Freddie Gruber. He was a, an amazing um, sort of physics drum guy. And uh, very, very, you know, a lot of people studied with Gruber. But there's this idea that actually the pivot point is between, is like a triangular thing that's basically goes through um, the middle finger and goes through this, um, well, you want to think about it, the first joint from the hand or the second joint from the end of the finger and the thumb. And that, and actually the forefinger is, is just... It's just like a bit of a, it's just a bit of a passenger. It's a bit of a guide finger. There's no fulcrum with it. The fulcrum is from the middle finger. And um, when I play match grip, my right hand is as I described. I play in this outer joint, the first one from the end of the finger and the thumb. And the stick is coming as if it's coming out of my forearm. In the left hand, I play from the middle finger and thumb in that um, in that joint so the first joint from the hand or the or the you know the oops sorry about that the um, the second joint from the end of the finger in my left hand um, so when I'm playing match grip I'm not even playing match grip because the hands aren't matched they're doing different things um, and uh, it tends to work fine for me and I think part of it's because I've played traditional grip for so long that I think that I just fundamentally gravitate towards having unmatched hands and uh, that the thing about having unmatched hands I always find is, is that like to make sure the hands are working together and, and making a uniform sound on the instrument it requires some attention you know and um, which I think is a good thing um, there's, you know, there's a there's a percentage or a certain amount of muscle memory going on, which is very important that we have. You know, we've worked enough on uh, practicing certain things, so we've got like an in, an inherent way of playing that's that's got a, that's got a muscle memory that's working with our, um, you know, with our neural network in the brain and all that stuff. But. We also we want to be aware and have you know have a, have a level of awareness when we're playing. So I think that's um, that's why I play like that. So I I just think don't be don't be afraid of experimenting between the hands. You know, with what feels more natural in your right hand or your left hand, what kind of makes the sound you want to make. You know, um, I just wouldn't be too academic about it. I would definitely work from a place of feel and emotion if you can you know um but that doesn't mean to say play with some weird hideous technique that's never going to work and and like it's going to inhibit you above like 90 bpm you know or something or semi-quavers at, at 110 or something you, you we've, you've got to be we've got to be sensible here you know you if you want to in order to play flexibly and at speed etc etc and get around this it's a big physical instrument the drum kits you know it's a big wide instrument this instrument that we're not connected to with our hands at pretty much any time we're hitting it and moving away from it constantly the feet is an interesting one the hi-hats the only part a lot of the time with it you're playing grooves where it's closed the bass drum's active the, the other in the left foot's active because it's you know, it needs to be active all the time if it needs to open, but it's it's the one thing that's, that's where the instrument's shut, so to speak. The bass drum's playing, the, the hands are playing, they're hitting and they're moving away. We're playing grooves, you know, that that's happening several times a second. You're playing fills, it's happening several times a second. You're playing fast fills, it's happening a heck of a lot of times a second, you know. So... It's different than other instruments. If you're playing a piano, it's a button-pushing instrument, isn't it? Or saxophone is a, you know, a button-pushing instrument, but you've got to make a sound from the mouthpiece, you know, the embouchure and all that stuff. Trumpet's the same, button-pushing instrument, but you know, you've got to make sound by breathing through it. Uh, violin, it's, you know, that's like 
like um, and guitar and things like that are very different kinds of instruments, but they're, they're instruments that you're always touching, connected to in some way, you know, in, in one of the hands. The drums is, you know, that's not the case. So um, we've got to have a successful technique, you know, that's going to be able to mean we can be expressive and not be inhibited, um, you know, by not being able to remotely execute our ideas or what people require of us. You know, people say, well, I need you to play this thing. Some of it will some of it will be technical, some of it will be coordinational, you know. So uh, finding coordination, um, finding answers through, sorry, through coordination can often help with technical problems. And, and the opposite is not often the case. But some things are just technical, you know. Um, but if I just talk a little bit for the end of this, just about traditional grip. What is traditional? What is the tradition, you know? Well, it comes from like a marching drum thing, doesn't it? And if, I don't know if any of you have ever marched. I did when I was in the cub, in the scouts. It was a horrific, it was horrendous. No, it wasn't, I wasn't in the scouts. I was just in a, I was in a brass band at school. That was what it was. And we had to march occasionally. It was genuinely one of the most awful things I've done in music. It was just like it had this brace thing that kind of went on your leg and it never it didn't work properly. I just did a huge bruise. It basically had a, had a drum rim smashing into my leg every step that I took whilst trying to play this snare drum thing. Well, the one thing that I quickly learned um, the, was pretty much when you're playing a snare drum that's, you know, with a sling over the shoulder, there's no way you can play match grip and play anything that sounds remotely any good or not get some horrific RSI arm injury, you know, or something. Or, you know, or look like, you know, you've something's really not happening um, when you're playing, you know. So that's the, the logic of it uh, makes a lot of sense. The logic of it, essentially, when you're playing a drum kit, is makes no sense at all, really. Um, the traditional grip thing is, uh, you know, there's some people that are quite militant about traditional grip. Um, don't believe in it at all. They believe it's bad for you, you know. Uh, I think that's nonsense, and I'll say that now, and I'd say it to those people. Um, they've had maybe negative negative experiences. That's uh, you know, that's that's what's happened for them. I am nearly 50. I've been playing traditional grip since I was 12, 13 years of age. I've never had any problems, ever. Um, ever. So there's nothing wrong with traditional grip. I'm just saying that now for the record. Those people are wrong. That's your your experience of it has been negative. Doesn't mean it's a negative thing for other people. Um, but it is very weird. And in a way... <clears throat> playing a modern drum kit, it makes no sense at all, you know. Why Why would you do it? But for some reason, I did, and lots of other people do still do that. And uh, so on a technical level, just on a pure... I have two fundamental approaches, which I think I've already talked about. I've only gone about too much. But I either play using the thumb... Um... um so I use the thumb as like a finger. So if I'm playing doubles, there's a there's a there's a stroke created by turning the forearm and, and the hand, or whatever, however you want to think about it. People have sort of slightly different pivots in traditional grip. You know, I tend to I I tend to um, there's this thing of like you know, you pick the whole forearm up and you play from above the head and on the, that pef, the classic picture of Ted Reed on the front of syncopation, you know, and that's like, you know, that's a way of understanding the fundamentals of the grip. Nothing wrong with that. But actually the realistic way of playing it, you want to be down near the drum and getting back to the drum as quick as you can. Especially if you're playing just like a normal, like that, like a normal double stroke roll. That, I'm doing that by a small turn of the hand and then the forefinger is collecting the stick on the second stroke. And I could do the same thing with the thumb. So I'll, so some things I'll do with the thumb, some things I'll use the forefinger. The middle finger is a bit of a passenger. It's just a guide sort of finger. It's a bit like playing from that middle finger thing with the groover thing. 
And then the 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 third finger, um, the ring finger, whatever you want, whatever you want to call it, um, it's like a little table. And again, it's just it's just something that sort of guides, just guides the stick, you know. But yeah, so that's kind of like that's the technical side of it. But that's not the whole picture because we you know we 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 should always be thinking here about you know the kind of emotional side of what we're doing or why we're doing what we're doing you know the connection to the instrument in a in a personal way, and that was one of the reasons ultimately why I carried on playing traditional grip. You know, I got into playing traditional grip because I saw Buddy Rich playing the drums, and then I got some albums, and and I, and I had this teacher, and I got into playing traditional grip. Um, but I soon stopped listening to Buddy Rich and got into, you know, listening to Jack Jeanette. And Jack Jeanette's a very interesting person in relation to traditional grip because Jack Jeanette played traditional grip for a long time and no longer does, I believe, because he had some problems in his arms, you know, I think. Um, there was some kind of issue. And... Uh, but when I got it, you know, when I got into playing, I was listening to lots of different players, and some were playing traditional, some were playing match. But I just carried on playing traditional because it just felt, it always felt like I was connecting to the instrument in a way that I wanted to connect to the instrument, you know. Um, and I think as my as my sort of tastes and style changed, and as I wanted to do other things over the years, this is why sort of twelve years ago I started getting into playing match grip a bit. The thing with the feet, um, just to kind of, you know, in summary here, you know, about why we make decisions, I I agonised for years about whether I should play heel up or heel down. And the thing that I've settled on and it's been really good for me and it feels like, uh, I definitely feel like I've made a lot of improvements in my feet in the last three or four years, is I made a commitment to playing heel down. Um and practicing everything heel down. Uh, and it was because of uh, a conversation I had in a lesson that I had. And uh, it's, uh, I don't want to get into the conversation or the, or the, the lesson details because it's a little bit controversial, but it, it's a view that I actually agree with. Um, but it's not something that um, I kind of need to go into a great deal of detail about. But it, it, it just persuaded me to make a commitment to sort of saying, let's just let's just practice heel down. Let's like let's forget about having to practice heel up and having to practice heel down and do all these different things in the feet. Let's just practice heel down. And and I have done and I've been doing that for about four years. And I definitely I definitely felt an improvement in my heel down and my heel up playing because of it. And most of it's connected actually to coordination. It's not connected to technique. But the thing of making a commitment for me to practice one single approach when I'm practicing and tackle coordinational problems, and this is the key for me here, has meant that just having that singular approach has made things much easier when I've been practicing and trying to get stuff sorted out. It's been like a real revelation for me, you know. And uh, that came to me through help from somebody else, through a great teacher. And uh, that view was was explicitly um, explained, and it made a lot of sense to me um, when we sort of looked at all these different options and why whatever was happening and what wasn't happening and what I imagined was happening and all these things that I you know, wasn't able to do very well and the things that I've subsequently learned to do and and had this singular approach to the feet. So it's not all just about the books. The books are great. My thing is 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 about balance. So, you know, different books are going to help you practice specific things, information, stuff to do, you know. Um, I do want to do, a, I'm going to do maybe next week a podcast just about organising practice. I get questions about this all the time. And, and it's funny, over the years, um, even with people that I've taught for a little bit and that, and I normally think of as people that practice well and are quite organised, they come to me, I was talking to a guy at college last week who's a very good drummer and he's not practising um, in the normal way at the moment because um, 
he's got a bit of an injury, but he's he was even asking me about organising his practice, and uh, he, you know he's somebody that's good player. You know he's got a lot of good things down, but it's just I think sometimes people just need to have that conversation. You know about just want to like ah, oh, just feeling like I just want to get a little bit more organised and just be a little bit more clear about what I'm practising, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So um, it kind of feels like it follows on from this, you know, but uh, from the books thing, and now talking about you know how to how to sort of do what we do when we're using the books, thinking about different ways. But it's just that thing of, of um, have you thought about different options with technique? You know, uh, are, are you feeling a way of playing which you're not sort of exploring because you think you should be doing something different for whatever reason somebody's told you or you've seen somebody or, or you just you know, bloody-minded, thinking, I must do it this way because this is it, you know. Um, and the other thing that I haven't really discussed, really, but I talked about it a bit with the French thing, is just the finger control thing. Just the, just that simple rebound, practising rebound, you know, just in that way, using single, it's single strokes, but it's single rebound strokes. It's not playing from the wrist or the forearm, it's playing from the rebounding from the finger. And it's a great way of training the hand that it's a great way of building muscle strength the small muscles in the hand and, and, and building dexterity you know so i would definitely recommend that as well um and i think there's a there's a Chaz wilcoxon book that's i think i can't remember the name of it now um but it's called uh oh what's the name of it i'm gonna find the name of it i'm determined uh i have got it uh, somewhere but it's a great it's a great book for you know tackling um when you're sort of doing uh wrist and finger exercises when you want to sort of find you know different um different ways accents and rebounds uh, i think that's one of the um yeah, that's that's a George Lawrence Stone book. Sorry, yeah. Um, where is this? Uh, there you go, Wilcoxon. It's called Wrist and Finger uh, Control. Yeah, it's a good book, and it's and it's just got specific exercises for things that you play with your wrist and things that you play with the finger. You know, um, and I, it's been a really I found that a really useful book. I've tended to practice more simple approaches to the finger thing, just of, of trying just to gain rebound and speed. And I've talked a bit about that in the in the in the metronome drumometer podcast a little bit about some exercises that I practice there. But um anyway, so that's kind of it for this week. Um thanks for listening if you have been again. Um really appreciate it. I appreciate all the people who sent me lots of nice messages about this. Um Again, you know, it's just amazing that anybody's listening to it and um, it's a great way to archive ideas and it's yeah, it spurred some really nice conversations with some drumming friends of mine that have listened to it and I've not heard from for a while as well, which has been great. So, you know, um, all the best to everyone and uh, I will be back next week. So uh, bye for now. <laughs>